0: we've been walking through these verses noticing that Paul's love for Timothy has led to this uh, put it this way, this gentle word of exhortation verse 6 he's been told uh, to stir up the gift of god that is in him the lord has worked in Timothy seeding his soul but also equipping him to serve the church of christ and paul seeks to encourage Timothy in that end By causing him to remember the work of the Spirit of God. Verse 7. The Spirit of power and love and of a sound mind. He's encouraged to remember the Spirit is at work in you. He's also encouraged to remember the wonder of the gospel for which he's suffering. Verse 9. Saved us, called us with an holy calling. Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. The grace that comes in the appearance of Christ Jesus. Verse number 10. And so it is true for all of us that if we are struggling today in our Christian walk, if we are wrestling at this point to keep on going forward, it is good to remember the work of the Spirit in us and the wonder of the gospel for us. Those are always good things to consider. But Paul proceeds by linking now the gospel and his own present condition verse 12, for the which cause I also suffer these things. He's mindful of his own condition. He's in prison. We know in this letter he's facing death as a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Word of God, verse number 11. You see, the gospel is what he is involved in, verse 11, for unto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. The gospel that he just mentioned, verse 9 and 10. And before we proceed, it's good to notice the terms that he uses here. They are terms, again, that instruct the church in every age. We think here of the veracity of the gospel. Paul is appointed as an apostle. I'll say more of this next week, Lord willing, but here we see in this claim to an apostleship that he's claiming to be one appointed by Christ to teach the words of Christ. He's reminding Timothy, I believe, by implication here, that the gospel for which he's suffering is true. And again, when it comes to the end of all things, no matter what he must suffer, if something is true, it is true regardless of the consequences. And so Paul, as an apostle Is reminding Timothy and ourselves that the gospel that is preached is true because it comes by Christ's appointment, the veracity of the gospel. You've also got an insight into the authority of the gospel here because Paul is a preacher, a herald. We've seen this word many times. It has that idea of one who brings the word from a king to the people, and it comes with the authority of the king. Paul doesn't make the gospel up. He comes and speaks the words of the King, Christ Jesus. Again, reminding Timothy, the gospel which you suffer and which I suffer is Christ's gospel. And it ought to be preached with authority, even though the world hates it. Veracity, authority, and finally, clarity. Paul is also a teacher. A teacher of the Gentiles indicates, and these three terms are being used, indicating again that the Word of God comes to our minds. You think of Acts 28 when Paul is in that house prison in Rome and he's persuading and convincing people that Jesus is the Messiah. You see, the gospel is to be understood. You know, there are, again, errors in that regard in various directions. There are some preachers who think it's important that they show the congregation how much they know. They've got a display. I, I know all of these deep things of theology, but they display them in such a way that the people are left they are left totally confused. And they don't know what they think, not because the preacher was unorthodox, but because he was not clear. Now, does that mean you shouldn't give good meat to the people? Of course not. But it is imperative that as the Word of God is preached, it is preached clearly to the understanding. It's also possible, of course, But people today forget the fact they are to teach the gospel. Some will seek to manipulate people's emotions. Others will seek to simply bring some sort of religious homily that has no effort to teach. You see, the apostle was a preacher and a teacher. We are not apostles, but we preach apostolic truth, and we must do so with authority and with clarity. Anything less is less than what Christ expects. And the gospel is such that it must be preached with this authority and this clarity. But as Paul does so faithfully, it leads to this suffering, verse number 12. For the which cause I also suffer these things. But as he suffers, he can say, nevertheless, I am not ashamed. That's important in the context here. Remember verse number 8 where Paul says to Timothy, Be not thou therefore ashamed. Verse 12, I am not ashamed. Verse number 16, Onesiphorus was not ashamed. You see, Timothy is being encouraged here by the example of Paul and of Onesiphorus. He's being shown by these men that he himself ought not to be ashamed. But verse number 12 stands as one of the high points in all the scriptures regarding the confidence that Paul has in Christ Jesus. Why is Paul not ashamed? Well, here he says he is not ashamed not because of his natural character, not even because ultimately the work of the Spirit, oh, that's true. He's ashamed because he knows Christ. For I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. And so today, I want to think about this verse and seek to encourage all of you that if we walk in this world, whatever our calling is, and we do so faithfully, it, we will only do so in light of our confidence in Christ Jesus. So why is Paul confident? Well, let's begin by thinking about How he describes the operation of faith here. Because whilst we understand that salvation is of God, the Bible and this portion itself also indicates the activity of the believer. The action of the believer. He says, for I know whom I have believed. Here's a general word for faith that is used throughout the New Testament. What is faith? Knowing the gospel believing the gospel to be true, and then putting our trust in the gospel. Those three things are vital. We know the story of Christ. We believe that story to be true. Those are both important regarding faith. But there's also this next step, and the next step is putting our trust in Christ. And that third step is what Paul teaches here when he says, That which I have committed. That's the third step in this is process, this action of faith. Now here I need to take some time to ask you to think through what is meant in this particular phrase. He is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Now this is one of the times that people have struggled somewhat to understand what Paul says. Now you, I suspect, immediately have jumped to the right answer. But the word committed here refers to a deposit. It's used there in verse 14. That good thing which was committed unto thee, keep. And in that context, that's referring to the form of signed words of verse number 13. And so there are some who suggest that what Paul refers to here is God preserving the gospel to that day that the gospel is God's and He is committed to its preservation, the deposit of the good news, that's what is involved in verse number 12 because of the context. But I don't think that's correct. The word here speaks, yes, of the idea of keeping something safe or secure. Christ used the word on the cross. He commits His Spirit into the Lord and the Father. Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. The same word being used there in Luke 23. So is it the gospel here? Is it God preserving the gospel? Some suggest it may be that Paul is referring to those souls that he's ministered to. He's ministered to souls and he's committed their care into the Lord's hands. Others suggest Paul may be referring to his physical body. He's committed his body into the Father's keeping and the Father's safety in light again of the context. Others say it refers to his soul, his all, his salvation. And that last idea is what I think Paul is teaching here. He's referring to the fact that he's committed his soul, his salvation into the Father's care. Now, how can we take that view when in the context, two verses later, the word committed is used with regards to the gospel? Well, because they're not used the same way. Even in English, we use the same words in different ways, uh, very, very closely connected. Here in verse 14, the gospel is not committed to God for keeping, but to the servant of God, Timothy. Similar words are used regarding Paul. God entrusts the gospel to Paul. I don't believe it's anywhere the case where the servant in turn commits the gospel back into God's care. Although it's true, ultimately, absolutely true, that God preserves the gospel and his word. I'm not denying that. That's not my point. God does preserve his gospel. But the word's not used that way. It's also the case that this word committed does serve as a natural parallel to, To the word believe. I know whom I have believed. And I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed. And they act as parallels. Indeed, the second term committed, expanding and explaining the term believed. And the third reason for this, at least this understanding, is the reference to that day. He is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. But what day? What day is involved there? Well, I think the day that's involved there is implied in verse number 10 with regard to the Lord bringing life and immortality to light through the gospel. Immortality does not come now. We are yet to put on immortality, First Corinthians 15. Your souls are immortal. But your entire humanity is not immortal until Christ returns on that day. And so the reference to immortality in verse number 10 is the most natural link into that day in verse number 12. The day referring to the day that Paul often refers to as the day, namely the day of the Lord, the day of Christ's return. And so what's involved here is Paul is saying he has committed his whole humanity, body and soul, into the Father's safekeeping in the knowledge that on that day He will indeed put on immortality. It's the commitment of the child of God to put their souls and their bodies into the Father's care. Hendrickson says this, hence the idea of verse 12 is that this truly immortal life possessed even now in principle and deposited with God for safekeeping, will be returned to Paul more gloriously than ever on that day. You get the order there? Salvation begins now, but we know immortality now only in principle. But one day we'll know it more gloriously. And in between, who looks after you? The Lord looks after you. And by faith you put your person into God's care. That's what faith is. Souls in danger look above. Jesus completely saves. You see, we often wonder, what does faith do? What is the operation of faith? What is the activity of faith? Well, it is the personal giving of yourself to the Lord for service, but also for safe keeping. Realizing that God is reliable and faithful. Uh, I don't know if you have much money in the bank. But you have, of course, in the concept of the banking world, you have safe deposit boxes. You, you may put jewelry or if you've got your gold bars. No, nobody nodding. But anyway, if you've got your gold bars or your jewelry, you, you put them into the safe deposit box. And you entrust the safety of those things into the bank using that safety deposit box. And the same concept is used here. The Lord is essentially saying through Paul that as a believer comes to faith in Christ, they fall gladly into the safety deposit box that is Christ and nothing can ever harm their eternal security. That's the idea. And that's what faith is. You're saying, My only hope is in the Lord. It's not finding in a church. It's not finding in what we do. It is finding in Christ and in Christ alone. Souls in danger look above. Jesus completely saves. And so the question is even for the child of God today, is Christ really safe? Is he able? Is he reliable? Is it wise to put my soul into Christ's hands? Well, of course, Paul answers that as he thinks about the object of faith. He says, I know whom I have believed. He is able. And as somebody mentioned to me last Lord's afternoon, and he is willing. The Lord is willing and able to save and to keep to keep our salvation in His care, to keep the soul, and to raise the body unto that day. It is the reality that Christ is able to save us from the wrath that comes on that final day of judgment. It is Christ-centered conviction and Christ-centered confidence. I'm not suggesting here that we don't believe in God in a more general sense. We, we believe in the Father. We, we trust the Father. And we trust the Spirit. But here the focus is Christ-centered. I know whom I have believed. And it is referring to the fact that the child of God, the New Testament testimony, is that our faith is in Christ. As God comes to us, trinitarily even comes to us, in the personal work of Christ Jesus. And so we know that He is able. And so I, my focus now is to ask you to stop in your tracks and to think solely and wholly now on the glories of Christ Jesus. To think about His ability to save your soul. That He indeed is able in His person and in His work. First of all, in His person. He is the eternal God. The one that is able is the one that is indeed described in John chapter 1 as the Word that was made flesh the incarnate Word, and we behold His glory. And yet, as the one that was made flesh, we know from John chapter 1 that He is before time the Word. He is with God and was God. He's the one of whom it is said that it was not robbery for Him to be equal with God. He is the co-eternal, co-equal Son of God. He is God manifest in the flesh. And as such... And here's the importance regards to the doctrine of the Trinity. If Jesus Christ is God, then what is said regarding God in the Scriptures is true regarding Christ in his humanity and deity combined as the God man. So you have this fact Our God is in the heavens, he hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. You have the truth that all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? Daniel 4.35. And so Jesus, as the almighty God, very simply, he's able to do all that he purposes to do. You see how that teaches the fact that your soul is safe? He has purposed to save your soul and he has the ability to save your soul. No spiritual bank robber can break through Christ and rob your soul. Your money may not be safe in the bank but your soul is safe in Christ Jesus. He is the almighty God who is able to do that which he purposes to do. All things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. He is the creator God, and his power is indeed said in these terms. Jeremiah 32, Thou hast made the heaven and the earth. There is nothing too hard for thee. I sometimes hear preachers say, you know, the Lord's people are very difficult. I suspect they're referring to challenges and counseling and leading people forward in the things of God. But you and I both know we are very difficult. We are hard to save. We were so unwilling, weren't we? We had no desire to fall off the Lord. And even when we were saved by God's grace, we, we still wrestle against the Lord's good and perfect will. We, we find ourselves struggling to trust in the Lord. We, 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 we battle and we rage against God. Even at times we see His will in our lives and we say, Not, not for me, Lord. We are difficult, but nothing's too hard for the Lord. He's able to save your soul. He is able as the Almighty God, Jesus, manifest in the flesh. He's also the perfect God, man, the incarnate God. We're looking at Christ here. He's the eternal God, and He is the incarnate God. You know, Job discusses the trouble that there is for the child for the for the for the sinner for he is not a man as I am says job regarding god that I should answer him and we should come together in judgment job 9 neither is there any days man betwixt us that might lay his hand upon us both no days man how can we meet with god we need a mediator but of course praise god there is a days man There's one who lays his hand upon both, one that saves and reconciles. You see, to be able, verse number 12, to be able to keep and to raise, sinners must be reconciled to God, and Christ is that day's man. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Reconciling sinners to God, he is able to save. But beyond that obvious point regarding Christ as our mediator, I want to show you that Christ not only has suitability as mediator, he also has authority as mediator. Please turn back to John 17. I mentioned some time ago, I was reading through John recently. And in John 17, there's a a verse that really struck me, and I thought uh, I'd like to share this with you today. John 17 in the verse number 2. Here the Lord, of course, praying to his Father. And he says, As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Here's an argument as to the Lord's ability to give eternal life. And the argument that Christ presents in prayer is that the Father has given the Son power over all flesh. It is that word for authority that we often see. Authority. Christ has been given authority by the Father. The Father grants the Son the authority whereby He is able to save. Now, this is certainly a mystery. How this works out in the course of time in the Trinity. But we know that as Christ comes into the world, He comes... In the power and the authority of the Father, and he is able to save. Now, it may be the case that some of this authority refers to that authority that comes after Christ's resurrection. Some of the language in John 17 has a past or present tense, but it's thinking of those things that are yet to come. And so it may well go back to Matthew 28, all power is given unto me. He is the name above every name because he died, obeyed to death, and was risen again and given that name above every name. But Whatever the case may be in terms of the actual working of this, we know that now Christ has authority over all flesh whereby he is able to give eternal life. He's able to save. It is his right Full duty to save sinners. Matthew Henry again has some interesting comments and encourage you, if you get some time this afternoon, go back to read Matthew Henry on John 17 and the verse number 2. He says about the origin of Christ's power, Thou hast given him power, in other words, it has come from God. And for man in his fallen state to be recovered, he must be brought under a new model of government. We're under a fallen order of government, a satanic order of government. And to be redeemed, we've got a new order of government, namely Christ himself. And the Lord has received his power, says Henry, which was to be executed in a way distinct from his power and government as creator. Note, the church's king is no usurper as a prince of this world is. Christ's right to rule is incontestable. And so Henry goes on to talk about Christ's power over all flesh. In one sense, he has power over all mankind. There is no earthly power that can hold on to the legs of some believing soul and keep them out of Christ. It's Not possible. No weapon formed against thee shall prosper. No unbelieving person has authority over Christ to stop you getting into the kingdom. Christ has that power over all flesh. But he also has power in this sense over mankind considered as corrupt and fallen. Hence it says power over all flesh in that sense. Over the sinful race, Christ has power and judgment concerning them whereby he is able to forgive sins. The Son of Man hath what? Power on earth to forgive sins. He has that as God. But there's also this sense that he has that in virtue of him coming as man into this world, as God manifest in the flesh, receiving this power from the Father. He's able to see it. These things, they add up one on top of the other. They keep accumulating in your mind. This alone... If the Father gives the Son such authority to save souls, then he's able to save. But you're adding these terms. They're they're accumulating in the argument. And Paul says, I know whom I have believed. And he is A, B, L, E, capital A, capital B, capital L, capital E. He's able to save. So emphatic is the apostle in his confidence in Christ Jesus. He's able to save. As you turn back to Matthew 20 or Matthew chapter 11. This last thing regarding Christ's person, again, we're thinking of Him as, as incarnate God. And in Matthew chapter 11, as He considers some believing and some not believing, He says in verse 27, all things are delivered me unto me of my Father. He has this authority from the Father. Wherefore, verse 28, He says, come unto me. All ye that labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He claims the authority he has from the Father as the ground whereby he invites sinners to come into Christ, into Himself, for safety and security. He is able to save; His Person proves that, and of course His work also proves that. Very briefly, His offering—Christ's offering of Himself is the exact work required to save the sinner. It is the work that was required, and he does that work perfectly. It is finished, it is suitable, it is sufficient, it is satisfactory to the Father. Exactly what we need. If we are to be saved and raised on that day, we need our sins forgiven. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sins. If we are to be raised on that day... We need a righteousness to stand in the presence of God. And Christ is the end of the law for righteousness unto all those who believe. His offering himself, he's able to save. His prayers. Let's pause on this for a moment or two. Turn across to Hebrews chapter 7. Well, here, of course, there is a very explicit reference to the ability of Christ to save. His prayers. Christ's work, of course, That work of sacrifice on Calvary is a work that continues, in a sense, as he intercedes on our behalf. Verse number 25. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. He's able to save because he continues to present the merits of his work in the presence of God. That's what you need. The continual realization that your sins are atoned for in Christ, and Christ is praying for you. Is he able to save? He's able to save to the uttermost. As you go back to verse number 16 of the same chapter, Hebrews 7, it says this, who is made his Christ priest after the order of Melchizedek, who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life here's the power of Christ's life he's able to save able to save and of course Christ as such prays John 17 11, and now I am no more in the world but these are in the world and I come to the holy father keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me that they may be one as we are Keep them from the evil. Verse 15 of John 17, Christ's prayers, presenting His work and protecting us from the evil one. He is able to save in His offering and in His praying and, of course, also in His giving. When the Comforter come, whom I will send unto you from my Father, Christ gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes and changes us completely. If any have not the Spirit of Christ, He is none of His, Romans chapter 8. Every single believer has the gift of the Spirit of God indwelling their hearts, and by the Spirit of God, they are able to put to death the deeds of the flesh. He is able to save his offering, He gives his life. His praying, he continues to pray for us. And his giving, he gives of the Spirit of God whereby we are able to live and to please God. He is able to save. And so going back to Second Timothy chapter 2, I know whom I have believed and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Christ is able to save. I did most of the preparation for this last Monday. And I was flying high. And I wish right now you're with me in my study on Monday morning. This changes everything, dear child of God. Understanding the person and word of Christ is the only place to ground your assurance. Christ has power and authority over every enemy of the soul, and no power in heaven or earth can prevent him from saving your soul, including death. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Fear not, doubt not, and do not be ashamed. You see, when we wrestle with assurance, we must come back to the fact that our assurance is not found By a morbid introspection, looking at ourselves and seeing this or that or the other thing, I wonder, did I do the prayer right? Or am I living right? Because you're not. You're living better, but you're still not able to please God perfectly. And so your assurance is found in who Christ is and what Christ has done. Is he able to save my soul He is able to save my soul and it is safe and wise to put your soul into Christ's care. My faith is so weak. And pray, Lord, increase my faith but does your weak faith in some way hinder Christ's ability? By your faith not being what it should be does that make Christ less able? Is he going to be thwarted you see, if your faith is in Christ, it may be weak, but Christ is strong. And he is able to save. You see, it is this conviction that gives Paul this assurance, I know whom I have believed. But it's also this conviction that leads to the fearless service. I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And you see, it is this knowing Christ Jesus that leads to people serving Christ faithfully in a hostile world. I am deeply burdened for this generation. I I am so concerned regarding the danger, the damage that their, their cell phones are doing to their spiritual well-being. I'm concerned regarding the climate in which they live. They're living in such profound ungodliness I'm concerned regarding their future, because things as they are trajecting right now are getting worse. And it's going to be harder and harder to live for Christ, perhaps. And, and you worry about these things. And what's the answer? It is praying that they would know whom they have believed. What will drive young people to run to the prayer meeting? What will drive young people to run, to evangelize for Christ Jesus? What will drive young people to the foreign mission field? What will drive young people to your seminary and to your pulpit? It is knowing Christ, knowing whom they have believed. It is the deep conviction that He's able to save that will drive their souls. And we wonder and we worry. And we must pray. Because what will change not only young people, but the middle-aged generation that have become lethargic and dull in the service? And what will change an older generation that think their time is up? What will change all these people? I know whom I have believed. That changes everything. This deep-seated conviction. And he is able. And I'm not ashamed of that. I think it is no coincidence that Paul prays. Turn, please, back to Ephesians chapter 3. I'm just tying these thoughts in my mind. Ephesians chapter 3. You have one of these wonderful prayers of Paul. Verse 14, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father. For what cause? Well, you go back to verse number 8. Paul refers to himself as the least of the saints, preaching among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery. In whom, verse 12, we have boldness and access with confidence by faith of him. Verse 13. Wherefore, in light of his commission to preach the gospel, wherefore I desire, listen, listen I pray for the church in Ephesus, I desire that ye faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Doesn't that sound awful, like 2 Timothy chapter 1? Paul, don't be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord or of me as prisoner. And Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, don't be fainting at my tribulations. For this cause I bow my knees. And what does he pray for this fainting church? That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. To be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ, which pass knowledge. For a church not to faint in their tribulations, they need the Spirit of God and they need to know the love of Christ. They need to see the wonder of Christ in His person and in His work. Young people, please, can I urge you, please do not go to some church that will tell you how to live a successful and prosperous life. Go to a church where Christ is preached. Wherever the world will bring you, wherever you end up in this world, make sure you put yourself under a ministry where Christ is preached consistently. That the doctrines of the gospel are expounded in your hearing because your children will need that and you will need that and all men need to hear that. And from that, the church is vibrant. Oh, there's undoubtedly times when as a Christian pastor and minister, there are frustrations that come in the work of God. The temptation is, well, I need to fix this and fix that and fix the other thing. I need to pray that, that I will be captivated with the love of Christ. And I need to pray that for all of you. Our prayer meetings... And our mission will never be the same again. The object of faith. A couple of words on the outcome of faith. I've already described the outcome of faith that is salvation on that day. Paul commits his safety into God's hands knowing that God is able to keep and hence to raise and to save on that day. As we close, I want you to see this in John chapter 5. And this will finish. Back in John chapter 5, we see again the Lord's ability to raise on that day. John 5 refers to the Father, again, giving the Son this honor and this rule and this dignity. And John 5, verse 25, says this, Verily, verily, I say unto you, there is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. For as the Father of life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. That's again a reference back to John 17 or to Matthew 11. The Father gives the Son the ability to give life. But then also, verse number 28, it says this Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming, in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good on the resurrection of life and they have done evil on the resurrection of damnation. The Lord is able to save on that day. So I ask the question, is it wise to commit your person into Christ's care? It's not only wise, it's the only thing to do. It's the only response for all of us today. Unsaved soul, it is the only thing that you must do today. And dear saved soul, thank the Lord for the day and the hour when you saw Christ and you put your soul into his care. Let's bow together in prayer, please. Eternal God and Father, we thank you again for the glories of the gospel. Help us, Lord, to take these things away with us and to meditate upon them. To turn them around in our minds in such a way that that we will indeed delight in all that Jesus is for us. Oh, God, we pray you'd help us today. May the word of God live and dwell in our hearts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.